0: Hi, I'm Susan, and this is Diane, and this is When Autumn Comes. Look, life sometimes just looks different than we thought it would. This is a podcast for mamas and for people who love them, whose lives were flipped upside down as a doctor looked into our eyes and explained our child's prognosis, or for the mamas who get very little sleep as they face symptoms and behaviors that just aren't typical for other children. This is a place where we can take on this journey together because we know that this can be a sad, lonely, misunderstood path. But we also know that as colder temperatures and darker days begin to appear, so do the golden leaves and beautiful sunsets of autumn. We know that life comes in seasons. We know that in our world, 24 hours can hold so much change that it feels like four seasons in one day. We are here to let you share your story, let you laugh and let you cry, Let you learn and let you grow together with other mothers when autumn comes. I have said it once, and I am sure I will say it again, but no matter what kind of journey you're on, it's super helpful to find a friend. I highly recommend to new NICU moms to find a friend in the NICU. I have overly recommended that if you are new to the medical mom journey that you find yourself some medical mom friends. These are people who you can just vent to and cry to and they're like, okay, I see you. You're not crazy. I see you. Let's keep going. In the last year, I've also found that it is super, super helpful to find yourself a grief buddy if you are grieving when you are interviewing potential said grief buddy candidates, I think it's really important that you, A, have the same dark or not dark, whatever your preferences, sense of humor. I think you need to be completely okay with crying in front of said person. And I think it's very important that you are completely okay with having 1,500 different conversations at one time because grief brain is real and you just pretty much go in all different directions. Today, you're meeting Kristen. Kristen is my grief buddy, and I'm so excited for her to be here. Without giving too much away, I have to say that I, I absolutely dislike the saying, take the lemons life hands you and turn it into lemonade. I do love lemonade, let's be real. Medicine balls from Starbucks, mmm, love me some of that. However, I don't think we should all be forced to find the good and make things good out of a really, really sucky situation. There are a handful of us though, myself included, who make lemonade as part of the healing process. I personally am doing this podcast and doing public speaking engagements and writing a book because that is how I honor my daughter and I honor this really unfortunate yet beautiful journey that I've been handed. Kristen and her family... They opened a nonprofit over a decade ago, and they are doing this to honor Samantha and help so many kids in our community. So, without further ado, meet my grief buddy. I'm very excited today because today's guest is one of my favorite people and she is lovely and now she's making funny faces at me. You get to meet Kristen today. Kristen is, she is somebody who God decided to cross my path with and we quickly became friends even though we weren't supposed to. Meet Kristen. Kristen, do you want to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about um, your family and why you're here? Because you are not a medical mom.
1: I'm not a medical mom. I am. I don't know where to start. So, um, I am the oldest of two siblings. So my mom is Malia, and dad's Joe. And then uh, my younger sister Samantha. Um, and then I am married to my husband Brian, who is from California and is a we permanent. Don't need
0: transplant. your whole family tree,
1: woman. <laughs> I'm a social worker. That's what I do. Like, I probably would have drawn this out: in a square and a little I circle, like and you know,
0: it's a podcast that we don't need visuals.
1: <laughs> Some of us are visual learners.
2: <laughs> I'll draw that out for notes.
0: <laughs> so Kristen is here because she is a sibling of a medical sister. Oh yeah. That part. And that part. I mean, <laughs> we know your whole family tree now. Do you want to give your social security number two? Um,
2: <laughs> I love siblings. So I am so excited for this conversation. I love to get a perspective into my kids' head. It's the best.
0: Here's the reason I'm really, other than the fact that, as you can tell, Kristen and I are really good friends at this point. We have had a sibling on the show. And the difference is, and Kristen, you can maybe address this for me. She was, um, Megan's sister and brother had cerebral palsy. They
2: were triplets.
0: Triplets, that's right. Now, Kristen is a medical sibling because your sister had cancer. I kind of wanted to dive into a little bit about, like, how it's, Different having a sister for sixteen years, and then her getting a diagnosis. Like you guys were living a typical Virginia life; <laughs> <laughs> everything was going peachy, and you were doing your thing. And then she got a cancer diagnosis. And how did that affect
1: the family? So let's see. I our, our diagnosis is not necessarily like typical. I think for and for people who can't see me, obviously air quotes um, in the sense of typical. Um, A lot of times what happens here um, in the area, so I'm also, my sister was also treated at CHKD, so we're in the Hampton Roads area. And what tends to happen is a lot of times people will be, they'll receive their diagnosis and then immediately be admitted to the hospital. And in my sister's case, her diagnosis was a little bit more drawn out um, in the fact that she had originally thought she had a pain in her leg because she was pole vaulting and she was trying to like power through it. And so for a while, they thought that she had, I think it was extra meniscus in between her leg, like her bones and everything. And so they had a surgery, it didn't like fix that. So then go on for more tests and treatment ideas. And in that process, we kind of found out prior to when they were going to do the like big tell and admit you situation, which again, tends to happen. It's like this overwhelming flood of information. And then it's like, oh, by the way, you're staying at the hospital. Sorry, you didn't pack a ready bag or anything along those lines. So we kind of had an idea the Friday before she was told we had like done what every medical family does. We Google and other people we had known were like, this might be what it is. So I think as a family, we had done a good bit of like crying and processing that out before her initial appointment on Monday, I think is when it was and she got her diagnosis. And so while we're in one of the rooms at the oncology department, we're laughing and joking and we're making fun of the fact that she's going to be another one of those bald cancer kids. And I'm pretty certain her oncologist was ready to kill us. <laughs> he was just like, this is a very serious matter. And our family, for the most part, has just throughout most things we've dealt with. I think this is why Susie and I connect so well is we uh just kind of go with humor as our first default in dealing with things. Because the thought is, is ultimately, if you don't laugh about it, you're going to be crying. And I think we've tried to avoid as much crying as possible through the whole process. So even during her treatment process, we were always doing fun, goofy stuff just to kind of lighten the mood. So I think the first part we thought when she was first diagnosed was like, this is beatable. Other people have beaten it. In fact, there is a young man in this area that I went to high school with who... Is a survivor. He's in his 30s now. So we were like, yeah, let's, we got this. We can do this. We know somebody else who's been here. We, you know, we're going to tackle this as a family and we're going to, we're going to get it done.
0: What kind of cancer did you say it was?
1: She had osteogenic sarcoma. So she had bone cancer in her right leg. Okay.
2: And she was how old when she got diagnosed? She
1: was actually diagnosed like right on her 16th birthday. And so another like cruel joke that we like kind of made fun of about it was like, happy birthday. You got cancer. <laughs>
0: and
2: how old were you at the time then
1: um I was 18 okay
0: oh that's like sweet 16 and then spoiler alert guys I'm sorry she she passes I'm like ruining the story here but and then she passes like right before her 21st like that's just oh bad timing with the birthdays
1: (laughs) she 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 did not get a win on that that's for certain no
0: not so much so how did you feel as a sibling when she's going through treatment? Cause it was a long process, 16 to 20, 21. And you, yeah.
1: The, man, as a sibling during the process. So I, one of the things is as I was older when my sister was diagnosed, there are a lot of like resources and things available for siblings or there used to be, I'm not quite certain anymore at the hospital to help them understand all of the different things that would happen. They had this great program that was called XIPS and it was like this day where kids under the age of 12 or something could come in you would learn about like how much blood your body actually has so that when your siblings had blood draws like it wasn't scary and what like, they would go huh. through the emergency department so you would know because you cancer patients and you guys have been there yeah. it, medical families you just end up slammed in in the emergency department at some point and it's a totally different protocol than you know, what it's like as a typical healthier family, you know, your protocol for going in is different. You end up in like Mm -hmm. isolation room. And so they walked all of these kids through that, but I was 18 at the time. And so what was great is at the time, the social worker let some of us older siblings kind of serve as mentors for the program or volunteers. So she was very fantastic about that and getting to know it. But I was also at an interesting point in my life because I was graduating I was going to prom I was graduating high school and I was going off to college and so the great part for me I think was I was old enough to understand and process I didn't mean I wasn't terrified about what was going to happen to my sister and treatment and all that but you know I can't imagine you know what a seven-year-old goes through although I do now get to work with kids and see how siblings are and I can really understand like okay, you're upset about this, but nobody's seeing that in that situation. But that was one of those components. I met another sibling who was about my age and we kind of got a chance to bond <laughs> over kind of the complaining of the focus on our siblings, you know, cause here we are going off to college and we're like, Hey, we're supposed to be excited about buying like sheets and you know, the, the JMU thing, like let's, you know, how are we going to loft our bed and decorate our dorm room? And um, And I didn't quite have that like same summer experience. Mm-hmm. I don't think I regret it at all. You know, there are lots of people who are like, oh, I'm so like, I regret that I didn't get that. So it was still really a cool experience getting to do it with my friends and things along those lines at the time. And it definitely made me very independent. I didn't realize when I went away to college, how much more I did like on my own as an adult compared to my classmates until we were there. And I was like, you don't know how to do your laundry. Like haven't you been forced to have to do your yourself on the weekends?
2: <laughs> was there a feeling of deep down, like I can't wait to get out of here just because it was so much going on and there was probably a lot of pain and anxiety associated with it. Or was there a, I feel guilty because I shouldn't be leaving when she's going through this or like, what were you feeling like during that time?
1: that was more kind of where I was is I felt guilty because at the time my mom had just graduated college. So she had left her job, went to school, got her college degree while I was finishing high school. And she had these like big plans for what she wanted to do career wise. And right after that, she transitioned to being a medical caregiver for my sister. Um, And I think her first year, she spent like 270 to 280 days in the hospital with treatment. And it was, Kind of on and off, like you would spend like ten days in, they'd send you home, and then you'd end up back in there because you'd spike a fever or something. But so I always just felt really guilty that, like, here I was going off somewhere else where I was supposed to be. You know, the whole college experience, like staying out late and sleeping and eating mac and cheese in your dorm room or whatever. And my like, I felt bad that I was leaving my family behind to like have to deal with this this big like issue. I did end up coming home almost every weekend. Um, and so would spend the weekends um, at the hospital with her and we would like make them kind of like slumber parties and things like that. So I did feel what was great is being able to do that as I could give my mom at least a little bit of a break. I always hear you guys talk about it. Oh, like, what a bummer that you don't have like an 18 year old like hanging around. You can just push like, you know, you learn it. You learn to push the, the buttons and go, Oh my gosh, this thing doesn't need to be beeping. There's an inclusion. Yeah. Right. It's not actually like air in the line. Like let's just, let's go back to sleep. So it was, that was one of the things that I did feel like I could kind of help with is that like I could come home and give my parents that kind of break on the weekends. And then they would like go to Bush gardens or they would get to do like parent date stuff. Mm -hmm. once I think my mom started to trust me well enough with my sister that like I wasn't going to drop her or something like that was the hardest part is feeling like I couldn't do anything and they told me they're like you have to go to school my sister said do not stay home do not skip college don't do that but I think there was probably one weekend a month that I stayed at, at JMU and then I came home every weekend
2: and were you and your sister super close prior to her diagnosis
1: Oh man, uh, we were like two fighting wet cats, if that's even a thing. I don't know. Um, uh, my parents would have to like pull us apart because we were at that age, you know, when you've got, I don't, Susie, I know you have a sister, so it's like, there's like this time frame in your like, teenage life where you just can't stand your sister and you're always fighting. And it was at the point where like when she eventually got to go to college for a little bit, I would, and this was before there was a lot of Facebook, but there would be pictures of her on Facebook. And I'd be like, you're in my sweater. You're going to stretch it out. Like, <laughs> Cause she was definitely better down than I was. And I'm like, don't ruin my sweater. <laughs> um. So like at that point, we were definitely still, I mean, we still fought on and off while she was in treatment, but we became much closer through that process as things progressed in treatment and taking care of her and things like that. That's really cool.
0: Can you talk about like the good times and the bad times in the hospital? Because you guys spent a lot of time in the hospital together and through Mm -hmm. treatment. And for families who may be facing this soon or now or going through hospital life, your friendships became hospital
1: people, right It's kind of crazy because I walk into CHKD now and like it actually kind of has this like sense of home feel and I know most medical moms are like, oh gosh, please don't make me go to the hospital but when I'm there it kind of feels like a really big hug like it's so weird to say that because I don't think that that's everybody's experience so some of the things there seems to always be kind of like cohorts of cancer families and sometimes there's like a group where you know people are have different diagnoses but the moms come together and the siblings all kind of come together. And so we had another family that was very similar to ours. They became a good family friend. And then there was like this mom's group and it still exists. So I think that there are still some cohorts where that happens, but I think Katie and I were the oldest and then there were younger siblings in that group, but the moms all were around the same age and um, hung out and like shared tips and tricks and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And you know, war stories of being in the hospital. And so it was this great sense of community at the time when we were there, there was a lot of cancer family activities, they did, you know, the St. Baldrick's thing where you shave your head, they um, like would have days at the hospital where people would come in, research would have like an advocacy day. So we would go to DC to advocate about fundraising. And so there was just this really great sense of community around that. And then I'm really good at breaking all the social work rules. So so or so uh, most of the nurses, I feel like that, you know, we talk about that they're just some families. And um one of my sister's nurses, her wound nurse, had become she was there when my sister passed. Like she was at the house with us. Um she's you know, we were there for some of her kids' baptisms, um her daughter's wedding. And so the medical professionals and the like cancer families have all be kind have like just become this extended family for us. And then when you talk about the trips, so we decided when my sister was diagnosed that we weren't going to make the, I say we, it was probably my mom somewhere at some (laughs) point. And she was known as like the bag lady at the hospital. But we said whenever Sam was going to be admitted, we were, it wasn't going to be boring. So we would always come up with like a theme for her room for the time that she was there. So a lot. I mean, a lot of medical families spend holidays, so we definitely had like a St. Patrick's Day theme and a Valentine's Day theme and all that kind of stuff. But then when it would get kind of like wany as far as like, okay, it's the summer, like we would do, you know, a luau or we would do like an ice cream party theme and we would just go to the dollar store or even cut the craft paper up and do all that kind of stuff. And put decorations up on her window and along the edges of her, like, hospital bed and things like that just to kind of keep the atmosphere white because it's already, like, mm-hmm. crummy to have to be there. We watched the Red Sox win the World Series there. My sister's, like, a massive Red Sox fan. But that was the only thing that you could watch, like, as an adult at CHKD because... <laughs> they was like Disney owned them at the time so I was like oh cool we can watch ESPN and that's about it mm-hmm. so we would we would do a ton of those like different just fun ways to keep things entertained or bringing art like little arts and crafts so that we you know wouldn't be miserable while you were there
0: as a sibling did you ever not feel like you were part of the community did you always feel welcomed to all of that or did you kind of feel like an outsider at all in
1: the thick of it, I always felt part of the community. I think it's when you're given like the cure diagnosis or a child is passing away, there's a lot of times then when you just kind of feel a disconnect from the community at that point. We've stayed friends and friendly with the nurses. You know, we're all friends on Facebook or things like that. But it's not the same thing because there's very little like intentional. Like, hey, there's you know the one, one time a year where they have a thing for the parent at the hospital because their child passed. I mean, I don't know if they do it in different departments. In fact, my dad just got his invite today, but they don't really do anything for siblings. So that's the part where they talk about it in the Greek community. And, and this is like, you just kind of happen to be this forgotten person most of the time. After my sister passed, everybody would be like, how are your parents doing? How are your parents doing? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that that part does happen, you know, for siblings. And uh for me, again, I'm sitting here and I'm an adult, so I can kind of process it. Where I have a hard time is I always feel bad for like the eight-year-old or the 13-year-old who's got like all the hormones going and I'm going, oh man, mm-hmm. you're not going, hey, I feel left out. Well, they are, but in their mm-hmm. own special 13-year-old way. I don't normally voice it unless I guess you ask because I don't need the attention on me.
2: <laughs> but it's good to know, like I I am so appreciative that our audience is aware because I don't know if I would have thought about that like how you know how often are you a sibling of a you know somebody that passes away one thing I wanted to ask I don't know if you can actually put this into words is what did it feel like like what emotions did it drum up when she passed were it was there anxiety that it could happen to you was there like a gaping hole cuz i mean oh man being a sibling right. It's like a complex relationship. You're like kind of close, but you're very two separate people about to go live two separate lives, but still probably, you know, you're just, the connection is so different. It is. It's so,
1: especially now that it oh, was since she passed and, um, there's always these different parts where, oh, I'm going to cry. I know what's going to happen. <laughs> okay, uh, we always have to, <laughs> um, where you realize you miss milestones. Uh, I think the only person I ever told this one to is my therapist. So you guys are.
2: (laughs) And if you're not comfortable talking
1: about it. Oh no. And I, I actually think that this is super important and needed. Um, uh, As far as that part's concerned, because like there are parts where you realize that you miss milestones, right? So I got married and then engaged and actually, I broke up with my college boyfriend. Like there were these components where she wasn't there in my life. You're often left wondering like, would she have been my made up honor? Like, would we have been, would we have had a good relationship? Would we have been fighting at the time? Like both of us were like, we're never moving back to Hampton roads. That part's always really hard. Cause like, again, we just bought a house. So it's like, oh. if there was ever a person I would have been like, Hey, I need your help on colors. Like, how do we like do these decoration stuff and all that kind of stuff? She'd have been the person I asked. And so that's always hard. Um, Sometimes it's like a massive, like cry dump as far as, and for everybody else yesterday, was also the 13 year anniversary of her passing. So I was like, Ooh, this is solid timing for this, but um, there's like your normal things that you keep track of, like the dates that they, they passed or when their birthday was, but there are weird constant little reminders that will just trigger a cry. The part I think that's hard as a sibling with that is Susie and I talk about this grief is grief. We're grief adjacent as far as that part's concerned. But I realize that when you lose your parents, it's the normal progression losing a child, n- not the same. Losing a sibling puts you in this weird spot, especially when it's your only sibling. Cause you realize that, <laughs> Um, a lot of us share stories where it's like, "Hey, remember this thing when we were younger?" And I can do that with my dad, but when he passes, I'm not going to have that anymore. So it's both a loss of the past and the future, and being able to hold on to that to that part is difficult. When, especially when it's, when you're an only like now that I'm an only sibling,
0: and to be considered an only child or only yeah. sibling right now is a A kick. Oh, (laughs) it is. And that's, I mean, it's no different than me saying when somebody asks me, how many children do you have? And I say two, but then I have to go, wait. Yeah. I think it is part of the grief journey. And it is always a reminder to you when you're like, oh, it's just me and my dad right now. And you're like, wait though, but she's here, but she's not here versus, you know, and. Oh, yeah. I'm, as you're talking, I'm trying to put myself. In your shoes. And I say this all the time that, like, you cannot understand what somebody's going through by just mentally trying to imagine. But I'm sitting here trying to imagine if my sister wasn't here and what that would look like. And it is a different relationship, especially losing her at the age that you did. One day at a time, friend. That's all we can do.
2: I just want to say, how heartbreakingly beautiful your explanation of what you go through or you have felt as a sibling because that is the closest thing I've ever, I mean, I've known people that have lost siblings and they usually speak of their siblings still and the memory of their sibling and how great their sibling was. But that was the first time I've ever heard somebody describe what it is like. And I would have never in a million years imagined what you said about you know, you lose the past, but you also mourn and lose a little bit of the future. And and that is, it was just beautiful. And I know it's heartbreaking, (laughs) but thank you because it gives us all a glimpse, you know, of like how we can be more empathetic towards people such as yourself, because it is something that I probably would do. Like, how are your parents doing? Like, how's your family? You know, not specifically, how are you? So thank you for that.
1: No, thank you. That's the thing I love about where you guys and how you all interview different individuals is everybody has a story and everybody's story and experience is both different and similar. And I think that's what you, you know, you can bring, everybody can bring to the table is a level of kindness to the next person because you never know what that other person's going through. Mm-mm, never. I think there's another component where you ask, like, does it bring up different anxiety and things along those lines? And I would say 100%. I think my husband and my dad probably think I'm cuckoo because there are things where I'm overly anxious about stuff where like, I intentionally say, I love you and goodbye all the time because I don't know if it'll be the last one in the list of other things. Uh, (laughs) My dad had a heart attack while we were running a 10K that we'd been training for. So I'm always like overly anxious about like, what's the next medical thing that's going to happen? Like, mm-hmm. we-
0: I have to jump ahead here so that people fully understand. In 2009, Samantha passed and then in 2018.
1: Well, in 2017, my mom was also diagnosed with cancer and then she passed in November of 2019. So right before the pandemic hit.
0: <laughs> Perfect timing again. Yeah. So when you're saying it's just me and my dad. I want people to fully understand why it is just you and your dad. And that sense of, could it happen to me? Well, it happened to my sister. It happened to my mom. And my dad had a heart attack and a 10K that we trained for. Like, of course you're anxious, honey. Of course. (laughs) Mm
1: -hmm. Oh, don't worry. My therapist tells me that it's okay.
0: (laughs) Let's dive into your family dynamics when Sam was going through treatment. And then again, when you're You and your dad faced your mom's diagnosis also. Did it pull you guys together? I mean, I know you said you guys, you and your sister fought like wet cats, but did it make you guys come together? How did you guys as a family get through it?
1: It was interesting. So I know, Susie, you didn't really get a chance to meet my mom um, much, but- uh, I got a hug.
0: I want to tell you, my mom. I got a Malia hug and I am going to always treasure that hug that, I mean, it was super awkward and she like climbed out of a wheelchair and she was like, I have to hug you. And little did I know I would become <laughs> such good friends with you and I would forever appreciate that hug from a pretty much a stranger. But yes, go ahead.
1: <laughs> that, well, that's also how my mom was. Like my mom would hug everyone and everyone was her friend. And so, you know, most people go in for like a handshake and she's like, I'm just going to hug you. And I'm like, oh please, mom, please. Oh gosh. Okay. I love that. I would have <laughs> hugged your
2: mom for sure.
1: <laughs> um, so, so my mom, we kind of, I would say we definitely had a very matriarchal like family, so to speak, just because my mom was like, all right, here's how we're dealing with this. She very much told my sister, she could have like her one hour of being sad every day. She be like, you can be sad and have your one hour under the covers. And then that's it. No more. At some point, I wasn't privy to said parent conversation, but I guess it sounded a bit along the lines of like, mom said, I'll take care of Sam. There were a couple of like stumbles. I remember like where she tried to go like, okay, well, I can work and we can like piecemeal other people staying at the hospital. But at some point she was like, nope, that's not going to happen. And so the division of things was dad was going to work and mom was going to take care of Sam. Dad did learn a whole bunch of stuff like we would have to do port changes because a lot of cancer kids will have like central lines and then all the little dangly bits hang out. And so that's got to be a very clean, sterile environment. So my dad would always do that because that was like, he was good at it. And there were a bunch of other different things that he helped with. But mom was the one who would take Sam to and from doctor's appointments and things like that. And then when I was in town, I would just help how I could. This was, you know, well before meal train or things like that. So sometimes our church would, you know, organize meals. But we have all seen how sometimes that works out. Like they just end up either in the freezer or... There's this TV show, The Unicorn, in that the guy's wife passes away and they end up with like a year and a half of casseroles. <laughs> and it kind of was like how it was. It's like we would end up with so many casseroles that like we wouldn't need them for a while. <laughs> and so that's kind of what we did. And then, you know, I'd come home, I'd help clean, I'd help do laundry, you know, those different types of things. Chemo laundry had to get done completely separately because, you know, it's got cooties on it and all the extra potential chemo drugs. And you know, we just kind of like divided uh, things up and conquered things. One of the other things I think that definitely changed though, now that I think about it is we. my parents used to never take vacations. They would always like sell their vacation back to the company. We very rarely did that. Um, when my sister was diagnosed, we took vacations. Like my, we went to Disney a couple of times. We went on a cruise. We like, that became the thing. I was like, we we're going to make memory. Mm-hmm. And after she passed, that's what we did. We said, you know, sitting around at Christmas exchanging presents is what good is a bunch of junk. So we've always um, gone on vacation around the holidays part as a grief coping technique. And it's a great time. Everybody's got it off anyways. So
2: like the vacations you view as like such a gift to be able yeah. to spend time together before she passed.
1: Yeah, there were some of the, but like we made great memories at those, like at those opportunities, you know, I think her make a wish was to be like, she wanted to be a star for a day. So she got to go out to, L.A. and like record her own CD and everything along those lines, and like they're like some really really great memories um, in that process. And for anyone out there who is a sibling and gets to go on a make a wish, <laughs> hey, take your opportunity because it's a really like I remember getting out of college to get to go do that.
2: That's awesome.
0: So your family then Sam passes, and many mm-hmm. years later, you guys decide you want to do something to honor her.
1: Oh gosh! So where to start with all of that part? Because part of it came from our experience, like most people who start organizations. And so, um, my sister ended up during her treatment process becoming an above-the-knee amputee. During that, we learned a lot of different things, like her the running prosthetic that she wanted because she was a pole holder and wanted to get back into running. Insurance doesn't usually cover those, and the one she was looking at was like fifty thousand dollars. People very rarely like are saving to begin with. Like not all of us are sitting with a massive nest egg for retirement. Because like, no one saves for these medical issues that come up, let alone the cost of travel or this or that. And so, our friends and family fundraised for her to, to help cover some of her medical bills and for this running prosthetic that she wanted. They would do walks and the casual nights at restaurants and things like that. And before she passed, I would distinctly remember we had a conversation. About this, and she asked me. She was like, "What are you guys going to do with that money that was supposed to go to get my leg?" And I would say this was probably a week or two before she died because our parents had converted the garage into like this dorm room. That's how we helped her get through the fact that they had said, "You know, there aren't any more treatments." I was able to kind of come home and spend the last month or so with her. We turned that into a kind of like a dorm room. We had a mini fridge and microwave and. Um, but we're in there one night talking about stuff, and uh, she was like, "You know, what are you going to do with it? I don't, I don't really want you to just give it to like another nonprofit." And I was like, well, "What do you want us to do with it?" And she was just like, "Well, I want it to help other kids like me." And we're like, "Okay, oh, we me," I'm sitting there like, "What does that mean?" And she was like, "I don't know." And I was, she was like, "But I don't want you to just donate it somewhere because some it's not going to make a big impact. It's just going to be." A big donation and I wanted to like help other kids. I'm like, okay, well, we'll think about it. And so before she passed, she had all these really great plans to like write her godson some letters and things. But I noticed this later on when my mom passed, is that you just don't have the energy. So it was one of those things we never really got back to as far as figuring out what that meant. And so for a couple of years, I'm gonna say it was. About two and a half years, our church had held onto that money in like a separate account for us. And then we kept hearing lots and lots of stories of other families. And again, this is before GoFundMe, who are doing their fundraiser with a cashola, loan and a silent auction and a poker run and all of these different things because they need X, Y, or Z piece of medical equipment. And then we kept hearing stories of this child or that child wanted a new pair of hearing aids. And that was going to be their make-a-wish or they wanted an adaptive hand trike. So that was going to be their make-a-wish because the family couldn't afford this trike or some of the seating pieces that are used to help for feeding and things like that. And so some family friends were sitting around, we're talking about it. My mom, dad, and I were like, that's what we do. We start a nonprofit. We do that. We, that's what we use the money for. That's what, that's what we do. And I was actually finishing my master's in social work at the time. And I was up in Philly. And one of the focuses you could do was like a master's of law and social policy. So I started taking some of those classes, but focusing my reading on how to start a nonprofit. So like while everybody else was trying to figure all this stuff out, I was like, okay, how do we do this? And so in December, 2010, we founded Samantha makes it a little easier. It was my dad's genius idea to name it smile. I distinctly remember being like, we can't name an organization smile. That's like so dumb. Like Sam would hate it, and I was like, no one's going to know what smile means. And he wanted to name it that because my sister was known for like this big smile that she had. She would light up a room when she would walk in. And, um, my dad was like, yeah, we can, if we name it, Samantha makes it a little easier. And I was like, darn it. You're right. We can. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so, you know, like all things it started around the family kitchen table, we were just going to host a couple of little fundraisers and like equipment here and there when we needed it for kids. And we thought this was going to be like this little just side thing a bunch of us, you know, did on the weekends.
0: And now you're 10 years into running this organization that is helping children in Hampton Roads of Virginia. You are local to the state, correct?
1: Yes. Yes. So we currently just serve families who live or are treated in Hampton Roads, but that is to be determined as far as expansion is concerned.
2: Oh, so you're coming to Minnesota soon? <laughs> oh, yes. <that's-
1: laughs> so
0: I am trying really hard to honor Lorelai and everything I'm doing. As a fellow grief partner here, I think it is absolutely beautiful how you are honoring Sam and how you're continuing now honoring your mom and her hugs. What you guys are doing is just an absolutely beautiful way to continue to honor them. But now you're also like, you are the one woman show running this nonprofit and you're making it your thing because I know you. And I don't know if this is a sibling thing or what, but like you have said to me that people say, well, isn't this just so cool because you're doing this for your sister and at some point, you're doing it for you too. You're not just doing it for her, you're doing it for you to make a difference and you to make lives a little easier.
1: What's interesting about that i' was, I've been thinking about this a little bit is um it used to really bug me because the other aspect about it is um, a lot of times nonprofits get started up and it's you know within the first you know year or two they don't they don't continue or within five years they don't continue. in fact, there were many people in the area who said, well, we'll see if this stays around for five years afterwards. Like a lot of people close the nonprofits in memory of somebody. And so when we started Smile, I said to my parents, this has to be more than just honoring Sam's memory, because if that's the case, it won't survive. It has to be bigger than just, you know, a scholarship to keep her, to keep her name on people's lips. It has to make a bigger impact than that. And I don't know if that's like the social worker in me too, where I like, I immediately am like, oh, the system's like, this part of the system is broken. I'm going to figure out how to work around it then because if I can't get the paperwork to work correctly, then I'm just going to find another solution.
0: Or if that's the sibling in you who's like, no, you will continue to respect my sister. You will continue to know my sister because I don't know about you. I could pick on my sister, but no one else could pick on my sister. So like now you are the sibling who's like, I can forget about her whenever I want. And I can make this my project whenever I want. But you guys, you are going to remember Sam and she will make life a little easier.
1: And it's actually really funny. That's exactly what it, like. that was like, man, you finished almost my like whole train of thought there too. Cause that's the thing is like, it's like, I'm going to make sure that this isn't like going to, you know, just kind of go away. Like this is going to be a thing that like Sam's name is going to be on people's lips for, for forever.
0: A quick pause, so I can tell you something super important. Okay, so super important is a little bit of an exaggeration. It's only a little important. I I, even that's a little bit of an exaggeration. I'm used to like talking to people who get really big news all the time. You know, life or death things about your kid. So to say this is super important, it's not super important. I just wanted to tell you, in case you're new here, we have something called the When Autumn Comes Society. It is a Facebook group. And it is for all of you to join us. We are building a community to support and love on medical special needs moms. And it is a place where we talk about podcast things, but we also, you know, like I had you answer a question with emojis today. So yeah, join us. And it 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 really wasn't that important. Sorry. Let's get back to the show. I want to backtrack quickly because we, we talk a lot about how people feel. I would like to ask, and you can you not answer if you'd rather or if you don't know. At what point in Sam's journey and even your mom's journey, when you knew she wasn't going to get better? Oh. How did you feel? Like when you knew a few – like you made a comment about it was a couple weeks before she passed,
1: Oh man, please forgive me, mom. Um, (laughs) In August before my sister passed away, I'm pretty certain my mom knew that Sam was terminal at that point. I think she'd had a conversation with the doctors or something along those lines. And they let her continue to go back and forth to East Carolina. She was um, a nutrition major there. Her goal was actually you know, for a kid who was always a pain in the behind and a troublemaker, um, I will say when she was diagnosed with cancer, things totally changed because um, she wanted to become a nutritionist so she could help children who were on the autism spectrum or who had sensory issues figure out how to have a well-balanced diet so that they could eat healthy, even though they may be averse to particular colors or textures. She would drive herself down to school and drive herself back. I'm telling this part because... When we found out in I want to say like November December timeframe, mom and dad had planned a trip to Disney like for over Christmas and New Year. I was like, oh, we're gonna go do this. And one day, Sam on her drive back was having trouble, and she's like, Mom, I like I can't do this anymore. Like something, it's like she pulled over on the side of the road. My parents both drove to pick her up in her cruddy Ford Explorer and drove it back to Virginia Beach and they took her to the doctor. My mom called me uh, up at college to let me know that they had some bad news is that Sam's cancer had come back and that it was in her lungs. And I was in my cruddy apartment and I hit the floor crying. (laughs) I feel so bad. My poor, my boyfriend and my roommate at the time, both of them like end up getting home and I'm just like sobbing um, in the hallway of our apartment. And unbeknownst at the same time, in the midst of all this, um, the next day I had to take my comprehensive finals for my social work degree. And they had me sit in front of this panel and do orals. Um, and I bombed it. And one of my professors asked like, Kristen, you've been, you've had straight A's this whole time. What's going on? I was like, I found out my sister was dying last night and they all just were like, what? Like, we didn't know she was in treatment or any of these things. And I was like, like, oh, we could have rescheduled. I didn't even think about it. I like, I had my massive cry fest. I was like, I've got to go take this test and then I'm going to go home. Like, that was just like what I was going to do. And so I, like, when I found out with Sam, um, obviously it was a crying, heaping mess. Uh, And then we got home and it was she was angry. So if anyone ever like thinks that everybody like always comes to terms with things right away, not necessarily the case watching a 20 year old, uh, scream in Disney world. Are we only here? Cause I'm dying. Probably not. <laughs> um, not, uh, how everyone expects to spend their December. What do you do? What do you feel?
0: Do you sit with Sam for the month? Do you like laugh and do you, or do you just survive until she passes?
1: Oh, man. So we went to Disney. Then I think up until the day she passed, she was like, go, go, go. I mean, her sorority sisters came up and had a sleepover. Like, there's a picture that's circulating out on Facebook right now. Like, all of them blew up these air mattresses in my parents' house. And, like, they came up for a weekend and all just, like, that's beautiful hung out. We, like, watched movies, ate junk food. Um, You know, we went to Disney. We did a lot of – she did a lot of, like, art at the end. hmm I remember we didn't – we had some, like, kind of heavy conversations. I remember at the time she was like, you need to marry your high school boyfriend, blah, 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 blah. I think she had uh, these concerns that, like, things would change after she passed because she was also very much just like, I don't want my boyfriend to find somebody else afterwards, but I know he should. And so we had a lot of, like, very weird, hard conversations that, like, you do when you're 16 to 20 Mm because your brain's there. Mm -hmm. You know, like, I was – 23 ish at the time. So like, those are the things you're thinking about. You're like, yeah. Oh my gosh. You're not really necessarily even really grappling. I mean, you're grappling with the fact that you're going to pass, but it's not the same thing I think as maybe when you're yeah. 80. Yeah. Um, um, was she scared? Oh, she was terrified. I think. Um, Cause I remember the day that she passed, like she wouldn't, Oh man, I can't eat box mashed potatoes anymore. Um, because she, because she couldn't swallow. Um, like kind of just kind of where the cancer was coming back was making things difficult to so soft foods and water. So she would eat that, but she could tell when she wasn't getting, like when she couldn't eat and wasn't hungry and she, she would get scared. She would have panic attacks. They would give her Advan. She had a counselor who was trying to like work with her on like meditating and thinking calmly. And I always just thought, really, that's the solution here. That is going to be your solution to this whole situation. Is <laughs> like sit calmly and, and meditate and now I love to, I, 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 struggle with it, but I do love to meditate. So I'm like, well, maybe, um, <laughs> but, uh, she was like, she was surrounded by our family and friends. So, um, she, she wasn't much of a reader. She, it was just not her skill set. but she really got into Harry Potter. And so we were all like around the clock reading Harry Potter to her for the last like couple of days, um, before she passed. And, when she passed, what ended up happening is we had somebody there with us and you have home health and hospice and all of this. And they basically give you a whole bunch of morphine to just like keep her calm and pain free. And it's, it's terrifying to be like, you know, if you're having to give that medication and you're like, is this the last one that I'm going to give? Oh. And at some point it is, Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's um it's a it's very weird I think it's the best way to to go um because you've got your loved ones there you're at home all your familiars are there uh but it's hard and Susie and I joked about this is that uh at this point my dad and I both have to die in that house because it's become it's become a family tradition at this point (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) uh, as far as this is why I love you uh you know what's funny like when you talk about all of this like we talk about it is that like some days it's the cry day and some days it's the smart Alec, like Mm -hmm. weird, dark humor. And you guys got me on cry day. So, Mm, uh, (laughs) it's okay.
0: Sam passed 13 years ago. Mm -hmm. Are you comfortable talking about her? Do you want people to ask about her? How, how do you want people outside of this? You know, as somebody who has a deceased loved one, whether it's my child, my grandmother, your sister, your mom, is it okay for people to talk about our deceased loved ones? Oh
1: gosh, um, please. The one thing I hope that, like, uh, if there are other grievers that end up on here and who, who have said this is, please talk about the loved ones. The one thing that I, I, don't, I I'm going to say, hate. The one thing I hate is, and there are lots of things I hate, but I hate when people go, "Oh, I'm sorry, I made you cry. I'm sorry I brought them up. Oh my gosh, bring them up." Uh, learn to be okay with everybody who's crying. Learn to be, it's hard. It's super hard. Um, Everybody's probably walking around with some grief. Death is part of life. So everyone we know has probably known someone who's lost someone or they will. And so I love talking about Sam. I love sharing her stories. I was thinking about when we talked and I was like, oh, should I come up with a list of different things? And I was like, because I can ramble on about like our hospital stays and our antics, and sharing stories about like wheelchair races and getting her IV pole, like wrapped up in her, in her wheelchair and things like that. But I think that's the thing is that for anybody and maybe not, but I will say that I know a lot of grievers, unfortunately, like, I think I I, think I talk about Susie and I collect a group of like, we're either grievers or complex medical family members or things like that. But um Everybody wants to talk about their loved one. Like they don't want that person to be forgotten.
0: And you're not reminding us of them.
1: Yeah. It's not like you're, it's, we didn't forget them. Like they're, they're here, guys. Uh, uh, <laughs> spoiler. Like we, we knew them for about 20 plus years or in my case, 36 for my poor mom. And, uh,
0: and we still think about them
1: every day. Oh, yeah.
0: It's I, not like you're bringing something up that we haven't thought about that day. That We've probably been crying before you mentioned their names.
1: But yeah, yeah. <laughs> I will say I've gotten a little bit. Um, it, it's become, I'm learning different components, right? So, all of the grief and everything is different. So, I've learned in telling our organization story with Smile. I used to not share as much about the family stuff because, again, when we first started, people were like, oh, this organization's gonna close. You know, all of them always do when it's in memory of someone. So, I wanted to like seem very, very like professional like this is this organization we run and we do these things and now i am more open to to sharing a lot more of like our story because then when we interact with families they're not just like oh it's this weird board of magic money that comes some, from somewhere that buys medical equipment it's actually people who have been here that part has helped people i think in the work that i do too to see that you know oh wait you know we've been there we We've been the family who's had to ask for for help at, at times. Um, and so sharing Sam's story and my mom's story has changed. Now it's just kind of ingrained in who I am. It's taken a while to like put that out there just because a lot of people don't want to hear you cry. I think it makes people uncomfortable. They don't want to hear you cry. They're like, oh gosh, I don't know what to do with somebody who's crying. Like, please ask. Let me tell you about all the weird things we did. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: We will have in our show notes how people can find your organization and learn more if they want. And I, I do want to add here that SMILE is available for families with children who are facing life threatening conditions.
1: Yes. So, so very briefly, so now you all know the story behind SMILE. Um, what we do currently is we provide medical equipment, so, assistive and adaptive medical equipment, think your hand trikes, hearing aids, stair lifts. Um, <laughs> Yep, uh, we provide medical equipment at no cost to families um, in the Hampton Roads area. So a child doesn't actually have to be in active treatment either. So if there is a long-term late effect from a, previous life-threatening experience or diagnosis, we will cover the full cost of equipment. We don't have um, an income-based requirement of any type, um, and we cover everything from start to finish. So when I say that, that, a lot of times you might order a piece of equipment and order the baseline, we go top of the line. you got the fastest airlift there is, a uh, baby. Um <laughs> so as far, slow. <laughs> as far as Apparently, that's they don't
0: make them like roller coasters. Like, I'm like, <laughs> get the kid up the stairs already. <laughs>
1: But yes, Um, we did get the fastest.
0: It goes five miles per hour instead of three.
1: (laughs) While we don't have specifics, we are hoping to expand um, our service area as well as some of the programs we're providing. We are in the process of all that fun strategic planning and growing.
0: Well, Kristen, my other question for you is the one that everybody gets. (laughs) You act like you didn't know it was coming. I told you to do your homework. (laughs)
1: I did my homework. Um, I just didn't do it well. <laughs> Kristen, what gives you hope? So you're going to yell at me. Um, I, so one of the things, I'm both a thinker. So of course I went and like, I did some research on what the definition of hope is. And one of the things in the definitions is kind of the aspect about looking for a specific outcome. And I'm like, oh, I don't do that anymore because <laughs> that hasn't worked out well. Um, and so... I, what I thought a little bit about this is gonna be really cheesy, but I think what gives me hope is people's smiles and kindness to other people because that restores my my hope in in people and humanity because you can break down so much with a shared smile with somebody. and that's, you know, since we can't all run around hugging each other anymore, that's one of the best ways that like we can connect and tell people that you know that we love them that, We're excited to see them. It's like getting, you know, you see kids smile light up when you see their mom. That's what gives me hope is that seeing people to continue to smile and to share that and be kind to other people lets me know that while some things are kind of cruddy, you're still going to be good in the world. Mm -hmm.
0: That's beautiful. Okay, so this is my seventh attempt at wrapping up this episode. Every time I start, I get all Grief Buddy Mama Bear on the listeners. And you guys don't deserve Grief Buddy Mama Bear. You don't deserve to hear the wrath of Suze. So I'm just going to, you know, leave it with what Kristen said. I, I want to pull up one of the quotes that she said, because if you walk away with nothing else from this episode, maybe you skipped over the part about honoring Samantha or hugging Malia. You didn't learn anything about smile. Hypothetically, you guys learned a lot. The one thing I want you guys to walk away with is this. Kristen said, everybody has a story and everybody's story and experience is both different and similar at the same time. That's what everybody can bring to the table. A level of kindness because you never know what that other person is going through. So be kind, guys, because you don't know who's making the wicked good lemonade because they have to. You don't know who's setting up the lemonade stand because that's their way of honoring someone that they're grieving. You also don't know who's putting whiskey in their lemonade. So be kind, give big old Malia bear hugs and smile because you can light up a room. And I'm not saying that to sound cheesy, but smile. It gives people hope. This is Suze and I gotta go plug my kid in for the night. Oh, it's been it's been a lot of 4 a.m. 4 a.m. mornings for me. So send us all the good sleep vibes.